0: All right, let's look at our scripture, which can be found on the back of the bulletin. As we continue looking at one of the most famous uh, chapters in the Bible, this is 1 Corinthians 13, the way of love. Uh, Paul has been explaining to the Corinthian church what it's really all about. And uh, we started through this list, this description of love, and we were not able to finish, uh, but uh, we will uh, try to finish uh, here today. Hear the word of the Lord. ends. The word of the Lord. If you'll remember, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and uh, we have discovered that the Corinthians are in Christ, but they're also in Corinth. And the culture continues to have uh, an influence on it, shaping it into its mold, rather than the Corinthians allowing Christ and the Holy Spirit to shape them into his mold. And the result is the church doesn't look that different from the culture that surrounds it. We see factions and strife, lawsuits, and a general lack of love between the Corinthians. It goes so far as they're jockeying for status and position based on the spiritual gift that they have. And Paul has been teaching them what it is all about to follow Christ, and he Uh, really, really drives it home here with the point that the most important thing is not about building up yourself and your status, but rather to love others. Indeed, to love others is what you were made to do. You know, it is love that has been the hallmark of the church from its inception. Historians have examined how it is that this backward religion from a corner of the Roman Empire became... Uh, the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire in such a short amount of time? How did Christianity thrive while so many other religions died? And they've pointed to the fact that it is in the times of plague, when everyone else was fleeing the cities, that Christians would stay. That they would come into the cities, and that they would care for the sick and for the dying. Often at the cost of their own life. Indeed, there was a synonym that people had for Christians. Instead of calling them Christiani, they called them Christiani, which means the kind ones. If you look at the history of the philanthropic institutions that have been created in the world, most of them trace their origin from Christianity. The hospital, the orphanage, the, uh, the the asylum, the the uh, war, uh, protecting kids, protecting people. It, it goes on and on. Massachusetts General, the Mayo Clinic, both started by pastors, wanting to care for those who could not care for themselves. Love is the most excellent way, and Paul is explaining this to the corinthians and he's explaining it to us this list is not exhaustive indeed it's shaped with some irony describing to show the corinthians how far they are from the standard but this list rather than being something warm and fuzzy that we should hold on to should challenge us we've talked about the fact that the word used here to love is agape Agape means a love lavished on others that proceeds from the lover, irregardless of the qualities of the beloved. Each one of these words describing love and what it is in the Greek is a verb. And it's in the present tense. It's something to be done, not a sentiment simply to be felt, but something to be done. This is a description not only of how we are to love, but a description of God's love in Jesus Christ. Indeed, we've talked about the fact that you could take the word love and substitute it out and put in Jesus, and you would have a very good description of who he was and what he's like. That Jesus is patient and kind, and he does not envy and does not boast, and so on and so on. God is calling us as Christians to love this way too. So we should be challenged to examine this description and put our name in. Is Carlos patient and kind? Does he not boast? Is he irritable and resentful? Or does he rejoice in the truth? And what about us as a church? If people were to describe Redeemer Presbyterian, would they use the word Christiani, the kind ones? Because to love Christ, like Christ, is to be truly human. And when we choose to love, Christ is right there alongside of us. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And where we left off last week is on the second part of verse 5, that it is not irritable or resentful. Uh, Excuse me, that it does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Another way to say it is, love does not seek its own advantage. Later in this chapter, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his or her own advantage but that of another. See, the kind of love that the world practices is not an unconditional love, but rather a conditional love. If you do something for me, I will do something for you. I will love you when you do x but now if you don't do x you're out right the cancel culture i don't want to have anything to do with you because love is conditional it was malcolm forbes that said you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him and he's right it shows what's in our heart what is the message that we send To our children. I love you irregardless of what it is that you can do for me, or I love you when you do X and Y. Am I proud of you simply because of who you are, or am I proud of you only when you jump through the appropriate hoops? I used to, before I put my kids to bed, I would always ask them the question, do you know why I love you? And I would always give the answer, because you're mine. That's why I love you. It's not bound in what you do, but it's bound in who you are. To our spouse, do we say, I love you unconditionally? Or I'll only love you if you meet my list of demands. To the unbelieving world, do we say, I love you when you clean up your act? Or I simply love you regardless. I've said it before that I try not to tell people as long as possible what I do for a living particularly on the pickleball court but every now and then because there's some cussing going on in the pickleball court and someone who knows me will say careful guys there's a pastor here a man of God and everyone's like oh why do they do that? Well, the reason they do that is because I represent God to them. And that's the way that they see God. He only likes me if I jump through the hoops. And I have to very, very quickly sort of stomp that down and say, I love you just the way you are. Just be yourself. Think of the reason that God loves us. See, some of us think the reason that God loves us is because Jesus cleaned up our act and made us lovable. But that's not true. See, God did not save you so he could love you. He loved you and so he saved you. This is Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He loved us when we were not lovely. And so he made us lovely. Think of the life of Jesus Christ when he came to this world, that he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. It was the heavenly father that sent Jesus and said, I want you to go and I want you to redeem these people, my people. And Jesus deferred to his father. I'm sure the father said to him, you will suffer horribly and you will have to die in order to redeem them. And Jesus said, I will go because love does not insist on its own way. And Jesus accommodated himself to humanity. God becoming human. Can you imagine the eternal infinite God packaged in a human body, having to experience sickness and hunger and poverty and the stigma of being born and called a bastard child. And then with his disciples, meeting with them and them constantly having opinions. What's it like when you have, you're God and everyone else thinks they know better than you? And yet he loved them because love does not insist on its own way. And so God calls you and me to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so I ask you, does it always have to be your way? When you're in church and you're in a community group and people want to have a particular study, and you don't want that study, and so you either put your foot down and say, I'm just not going to be a part of it. Or are you earmarked by complaining to others? Why don't they do it this way? Why do they play those songs? Why don't they play these particular songs? You know the number one reason missionaries come back from the mission field? Because they can't get along with everybody else. When I go into work, am I known as someone that I will only do it my way? I don't like it this way. I'm inflexible. Or are you one who defers, one who listens, one who values others' opinions? Because love does not insist on its own way. It thinks of others, not just of themselves. But it goes on to say that love is not irritable. Love is not cantankerous. This verb is paroxysmo, which we know is the word uh, from where we get the word paroxysm. Paroxysm is a sudden outburst of emotion. And we've all experienced this, right? We're having a bad day. Everything seems to be bothering us. Everything is getting on our nerves. And it overflows into our relationships. And finally, somebody, the, the, the last, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And you erupt into this sort of, uh, you know, anger and bite someone's head off. Where did that come from? It came from this irritability, this paroxysm of building up until it overflows. There's someone you know who's like this all the time, right? Maybe someone at your work where everything's an annoyance, everything is a bother. And you find people walking on eggshells around them. And you simply want to avoid them because they just bring you down. But love is not irritable. I remember when my oldest son used to, well, not just my oldest son, the other sons went through Christian school and they would, they would come and they would talk about their teachers and some of their teachers they love, but other teachers they said, they just, they're just not happy to be there. It's like everything is an annoyance to them. The way that we respond to one another has a profound influence on how we see the Lord. But where does this come from, this irritability? It comes from sin. See, what sin says is, I am the center. And everything exists for me. But here's the problem. If everybody wants to be the center, nobody's happy, right? Everybody wants to rule the world. But we are no longer like that. We no longer have to be like that because as Christians, we're a new creation. God has redeemed us and put a new spirit in our hearts. And yet, some of that old remains, that flesh, it's not who we are, but it is a part of us, isn't it? We were made to worship and obey him. And God calls us in Ephesians 4.22 to put off our old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of our minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, that's what you were made for, not to submit to our flesh and its pull, to always have to be first, but to put the Lord first. And in putting the Lord first, put others in front of me. I remember my mentor, uh, he and uh, his wife, they had a little cross stitch up in the kitchen. As, as a brand new believer, I would look at it and it said, Joy. And it was an, you know, acrostic Jesus first, others next, yourself last. Because love is not irritable. You know, our Heavenly Father is never irritated with us, there are no eggshells. Necessary to walk on around our Heavenly Father. He never busts out in anger saying, stop bothering me. Get your act together. Because the patience of God never ends. And so if love is not irritable, what is love? You know, this word paroxysmo can have a positive sense. Where it actually means to stir up or to stimulate. If you know the verse Hebrews 10, 24 that says, and let us consider how we may stir one another up toward love and good deeds, it's the exact same verb, paroxysmo. To stir up someone, other people, toward love and good deeds. It's saying to live and interact with people in such a way that it inspires them that it encourages them, that it sets an example to follow. It draws out the best in others. When you've been around them, they make you simply want to be like Jesus more. You see, love begets love. Hate begets hate, but love begets love. It's a chain reaction. Jesus took these 12 guys and these women who followed him and he poured his love into them and they went out into the world and they changed the world. And they had the gospel. But one of the reasons that the gospel was so powerful was because they had love in their hearts that they took into the world. See, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. And so God is calling you and me to be this to one another. I'm not saying always a happy, go-lucky person. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. No. God's calling us to be authentic. But God's calling us to say, I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad we're here together, either in joy or in sorrow been a while since I've used this analogy, but I'll use it again. One of my favorite shows in the 80s, Cheers. Right? Ted Danson, remember? And the reason I loved it was because of the friendship that they had around that bar. And I think more than any other theme song, the theme song for Cheers captured what that relationship was like. Do you remember it? Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see that our troubles are all the same and you want to go where everyone knows your name. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. It's the next uh, verb, which means love keeps no record of wrongs. If you look at the Greek, it's actually an accounting term. It means keeping track in a ledger of debits and credits. Credits. Who has wronged you keeping a record of this? No, You may know people like this. People that have a list of everything bad that has ever been done to them. Every word, harsh word, every perceived or actual slight. There's a column for each person that has been tabulated and is kept meticulously accurate. And they hold it against others and they never let it go. They're like elephants, right, with the memory They can remember it. And they catalog them as valuables. In fact, every now and then, they pull out the ledger and they look at it almost like one looks at treasure. This is what I have on this person and this person. And they never let it go. They demand payment, but the ledger never changes because of the interest that accrues. In fact, the debt is more important than the person. I don't know if you have this situation in your extended family where Aunt Vera and Uncle Ted don't speak to each other, and they haven't for like 20 years. And you ask, why aren't they speaking to each other? Well, at this party 20 years ago, some things were said, and they continue to hold it against each other. And you think, how ridiculous. What about the spouse, where the other spouse had an affair, which is an egregious thing, so egregious that the scriptures provide provision to terminate the marriage? But they have decided to stay with the spouse. And for the next 20 years, that spouse who has repented has been trying to make it up. But they refuse to let them off the hook. And when they're angry, they bring out the ledger. So you remember the debt. But love keeps no record of wrongs. Love forgives And forgiveness is not easy. In fact, forgiveness is one of the hardest things to do. And when I'm speaking about forgiveness, I'm not speaking about reconciliation. Okay, they're very different. Reconciliation is both parties coming together and reconciling. But you can forgive someone who doesn't want to forgive you or acknowledge what they've done against you. But it's hard, and here's why. Because forgiveness requires two debts. What do I mean by that? You have a business partner who cheated you, and you suffered financially in a variety of other ways because of it. So you had to pay that. And all you have is this outstanding debt in your ledger against them that you owe me. But in order to forgive them, you have to cancel that debt. So, not only do you incur the debt in the beginning of what they did to you that you had to deal with, but the debt that they owed you on your ledger, you have to cancel as well. And it's painful. So, how can we do that? It's been said to sin is human, but to forgive is divine. See, the reason we can do this and have the power to do it is because God keeps no record of wrongs against his people. Every sin is ultimately a sin against God. Think about that. When you or I choose to sin, we are saying to God, you gave me life, you sustain me, but I don't want you and your authority over me. We're like the prodigal son, essentially saying, I wish you were gone. I want to go live my life the way I can. There is always a cost to forgive sin. God very clearly said in the scriptures that the one who sins is the one who will die. Otherwise, if God does not uphold that, that he is not just. In fact, God says there will be an accounting for every careless word that we speak against one another because someone must pay for all of the wrong things we do to god and each other god may forgive sinners but he never forgives sin it must be paid for but you see that is why god sent his son jesus christ who came and lived a perfect life and then got up on a cross and died to pay for the sins that I have committed, that I am committing, and that I will commit. It was Thomas Adams who said, sins are so remitted, it is as if they have never been committed. I don't know if you recognize this. I don't know why you would. It's the mortgage payoff statement for my house. This is a fictional document. But if you're familiar with a remittance slip, it would look something like this. A remittance slip is getting something, acknowledging that the bill has been paid in full and that you owe nothing. Sins are so remitted in Christ, it is as if they have never been committed. See, all of us in this life had if you are a follower of Christ, a ledger. And the ledger is everything that we've ever done wrong. And these aren't perceived. And so you see, the thing about God is he's the only one who's truly objective, right? He's the only one that can provide a fair accounting of my life. But in Jesus Christ, God takes this ledger. And not only does he zero it out, but he replaces it with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, justification is not just as I never sinned. It's even more than that. It's just as if I'd always obeyed. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. And Jesus is this way to us all the time. When our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. As I said, he forgives us for the sins we've committed, are committing, and will commit. Now, you may ask the question, well, then why do we have to ask for forgiveness of sins now? In fact, we just had a confession, didn't we? You see, because we continue to sin, we need the continued forgiveness of the cleansing of our conscience But we do not need the continued forgiveness of redemption. It's for us and a gift for our troubled conscience. The ledger has already been paid. The ledger is never read. And so God calls you and me to keep no record of wrongs. Peter came to Jesus in Matthew 18 and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? The Pharisaical teaching back then was three times. Three times if they sin against you. Peter goes even further, up to seven times, and Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Now, he's not saying it's 490, but at 491, you're out. He's saying... In perpetuity. And so do I do this? Are there things that I'm holding on to that happened 20 years ago, but I got it on the books? And when I need it, I'm going to pull it out. Am I holding on to these things like they are my treasures? Or is my treasure Jesus Christ? Because Jesus died on the cross, he allows us to die the second death and gives us the courage and the strength. And you can do it because Jesus did it for you and for me. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This will be my last one and then we'll stop. I think Paul included this because we see that in Corinth, the people in the church were bringing lawsuits against each other. And remember, back then, the system was skewed. It wasn't an impartial system. The way you won lawsuits back then was to seek to impugn and assassinate the character of the other person. In fact, rich people went at it all the time, seeking to tear down the other and build up themselves and when they won they rejoiced at this evil system to not rejoice in wrongdoing means to not rejoice in evil in unrighteousness or injustice love does not tolerate wrongdoing it doesn't rejoice or delight in it to take pleasure in that which is wrong Proverbs six sixteen says it this way, that there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. God hates those that abuse and exploit the innocent and prey upon the weak. I am convinced that there is a special circle of hell reserved for child traffickers. But love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Neither does it turn the other way. Rather, it rejoices with the truth. This word in the Greek, it actually means it rejoices together with the truth almost like truth is alive that when truth comes out that it rejoices and we are to rejoice with it as well what is the truth the truth is that which is real that which is the standard our world says that truth is relative and ethics are situational but there is a definite right and a definite wrong and it is woven into the fabric of the universe and its author is God and it can be found in the word of God Jesus said in John 17:17, 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth your word is truth see we must have truth because without truth there can be no justice That's why at the beginning of a trial, they say, raise your right hand. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. Here's the reason why humanity got into the mess that it is in right now. Because the serpent came along and said, did God said, really? That this is true, that you shouldn't do this? And then he goes on, no. No. What God told you is a lie. You will not die if you eat from that tree. The Bible says that mankind, in Romans 125, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. See, we rejoice with the truth because the truth always leads to God and his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. And I am the truth, and I am the life. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And he tells Pontius Pilate that he came to testify to the truth. You know, the Greek word for truth is a Hebrewic transliteration, Amen, Amen, which means that which is final, that which is real. And solid. See, love does not suppress the truth, exchange it for a lie, or do anything against the truth, or become upset when faced with the truth, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Well, what does this mean for you and me? It means that as Christians, to love one another is to rejoice in and to promote the truth. We cannot turn a blind eye to injustice or oppression of the weak and the helpless. That is why we speak out against abortion. That is why we fund CPC and uh, International Justice Mission, Free Kind with child trafficking. Should we speak up about, against this issue of pornography in the libraries of middle schools and high schools. Absolutely. Because love doesn't look the other way. Who is God calling you to stand for? See, Jesus stood for you and for me when no one else would. We do not delight in evil, but we rejoice in the truth. Our goal is to promote the truth to those who are not believers. And the greatest love, the greatest truth we can share with other people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people think the goal of the church and Christians is to reform people's morals, to try to get them to live better. Are we to uh, speak against oppression and and injustice? Absolutely. But trying to get people to live better is like putting a Band-Aid on a dead guy. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And the only way to do that is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings the truth into the hearts of men and women. And so we are called to share. First uh, Peter 3:15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. God is calling us to rejoice in the truth with one another together. We need to minister the truth to each other in lighthouse groups, in men's groups, in community groups, texting each other, getting together for lunch, a phone call, speaking the truth to one another in love of the goodness of Jesus Christ and who we are, builds and lifts up because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices With the truth. Notice that love is not a spiritual gift. We are gifted to love because we have the Holy Spirit. But this is the more excellent way. How do we love? In dependence on Christ, we begin to reach out and to love. Love is like a muscle, it must be practiced in order to grow. And there are no great things. Only little things done with great love. So, my challenge for you this week is to examine my heart and my life. Is love motivating me and moving me? Am I an irritable person? Do I rejoice in wrongdoing? Do I keep record of wrongs? Or do I forgive, rejoice in truth, and love the unlovable? This is the call that God has in our lives. Let's pray. Oh God, whenever we've lost the way of what it means to love, all we have to do is to look at the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. God, you continue to love us in all these different ways. And you call us to be Christiani, the kind ones. So by your spirit, would you mold and shape us into these kind of people? And give us courage to step out in faith and to love that you might be known. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.